Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are very happy to be back and excited to kick off the month of December. Boy, do we have a really exciting month. We have an exciting month, not just for the show, but for Disney in general. Yeah. And I I can't, I mean, we got a new Mary Poppins movie coming out. And we've got some other things that are happening this week. We got something last night that dropped that's got the internet set ablaze. But we'll talk about that in just a little while. Yeah, they're hitting all those trailers for next year. Yeah. And uh, my guess is that we have so many more to come. I can't imagine how many trailers. Oh, the the Holiday Parks Parade. I wonder how many trailers we're going to get. That's on Christmas Day. Yeah, that's like Disney's Super Bowl. So we'll probably get quite a few. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to watch that this year. You know what else I can't wait to watch? All of the wonderful Christmas films. Yes. And we started last night with one of our absolute favorite Christmas movies, 1994's The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. I'd have to imagine this is a staple in your house, right? I think this is actually my favorite Christmas movie. Um, It's really a toss-up between this and Home Alone. Actually, why why don't we just for fun, give me your top five. Christmas Vacation. Of course. The Santa Claus. Right. Home Alone. Gremlins. And new to the list, The Christmas Chronicles on Netflix yeah. with Kurt Russell. Yeah. That... If you guys haven't seen this movie yet, you have to watch it. I had to reevaluate my top five after that. For me, it would be this, The Santa Claus. Uh, Home Alone, one and two count as one thing because I can't pick between them. Uh Meet Me in St. Louis, even though it takes place over a whole year, it is kind of known as a Christmas movie because that is where Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas comes from. Jingle All the Way, Arnold and Sinbad. You put that cookie down. You can't go wrong with that one. And uh, and The Christmas Chronicles. Yeah. yeah. It was so funny. <laughs> it was so good. And Chris Columbus uh, had a hand in making that movie. So the things you love about Home Alone, the things you love about Gremlins, for all intents and purposes, the movie could be a ripoff. But, he rips off himself, so it's yeah. kind of, you can kind of let it slide. It's on Netflix. Kurt Russell is Santa Claus. Snake Plissken is Santa Claus. That should be enough <laughs> to get you involved. And there is actually an Escape from L.A. reference in the movie, which I think is brilliant. Um, but if, if you have time to kill, if you're looking for a good Christmas movie, definitely The Christmas Chronicles. And I think you definitely... Uh, if you haven't watched it in a while, or if you've never seen it, or if you just have not gotten around to it yet, uh, obviously the Santa Claus has to be on your list. This is, it, it has turned into a timeless film. Um, we meet Scott Calvin. He's a marketing executive for a toy company. He's clearly too busy and distracted for his family, which would explain his failed marriage and his strained relationship with his son, Charlie. Scott found out that Charlie was told that there was no Santa, and he gets upset that no one tried to convince him otherwise. After a failed dinner, Scott reads Charlie the night before Christmas and tells Charlie that he believes in Santa Claus. Charlie and Scott are woken up by a large noise on the roof. They go outside and find Santa on the roof. Scott calls to him, causing him to fall off the roof to his death. Scott finds a card telling him to put on the Santa suit, and the reindeer will know what to do. They go on the roof and inadvertently find themselves in the middle of Christmas Eve toy deliveries to the children of the world. They return to the North Pole, where Scott learns about the Santa Claus. 
from Bernard the Elf. Basically, once Scott willingly put on the suit and delivered the toys, he became the new Santa. They fall asleep at the North Pole, but wake up at home, leaving Scott to believe that it was all a dream, but Charlie explains that it was real. After Christmas, Charlie behaves in ways that worry some of the adults in his life, telling people his dad is Santa Claus, pretending to ride the sleigh, and constantly telling people about their night at the North Pole and their Christmas Eve story delivering gifts. Scott then starts to see physical changes, some overnight such as weight gain, growing white hair and a white beard, and despite his attempts, nothing seems to stop it. He also starts to get defensive about Santa Claus and slowly starts to embrace the idea in spite of the fact that he's trying to deny it. Neil and Laura, Neil being um, Charlie's stepfather, Laura being his biological mother, the ex-wife of Scott, they file for full custody of Charlie and given all the circumstances between Charlie telling people about the North Pole and Scott not denying that it's happening, um, they are granted full custody. Scott goes to visit Charlie on Christmas Eve, and when Charlie shows Scott a snow globe that Bernard the elf had given him the previous Christmas, Scott sees the globe come to life, and he finally believes that he is, in fact, Santa Claus. They sneak off to the North Pole, Laura calls the police, and a manhunt ensues. In a new and improved sleigh, Scott and Charlie set off to deliver the gifts. When he goes to deliver gifts to Neil and Laura, he is arrested and put in jail. The elves send a crew to break Scott out of jail, which they do using tinsel. Scott returns Charlie home. Laura burns the custody papers and tells Scott he can come anytime he likes. As Scott goes to leave, Charlie gets upset, but Bernard appears to explain that if Charlie shakes the snow globe, it calls Scott back home. Scott then gets in his sleigh, delivers gifts to Charlie, Laura, and Neil, and flies off before being called back quickly by Charlie. Laura gives Charlie permission to go with Scott, and they fly off into the night. I remember when I saw this movie for the first time in theaters, and I, I did see it in its original theatrical run. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember two things that stood out was this was immediately one of my favorite Christmas films of all time. And it seemed like the adults enjoyed this movie more than the kids did. There's I... enough here for a kid, but at the root of it, what Disney does really tastefully about this movie, because for all intents and purposes... Given the nature of the film and given a lot of what happens, you'd almost believe that this would have been something released under Touchstone, right? not Disney. But they do it in such a way where it's not totally over the head of a child, but the things that should be over the head of a child are completely there. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I remember loving this movie immediately the first time I saw it. But it is one of those films that gets even better with age. And I think that's still why it's at the top of my list as far as holiday movies go. And the older I've gotten, the more and more I appreciate the story. I mean, this is for all intents and purposes a 90s movie, but it doesn't feel dated. No. Um, And the more that I watch it, the more and more I appreciate the story and the script because there are so many brilliant setups for the action in this movie. And I mean, we're, we're going to talk about that in great detail. But um, aside from just being a really, really funny movie that's great for a family to enjoy, it really is just overall well done. Yeah, from top to bottom. Um, it's, it's such a brilliant 
concept for a yeah. movie. Um, I love the story here. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, you know what it is? It's a story that's been told a thousand times. It's a Santa Claus movie. You've seen it a thousand times. It's the the um, broken family and the work-obsessed parent. If we go put on the Hallmark Channel right now, you can see a movie with any of those elements, and they run them 24 hours a day. But what makes this movie different is how well-developed every character in this movie is, how snappy the dialogue is, the visual effects, the practical effects, the sets, yeah. the the costume, everything about this movie, it just, it works. It's so cohesive. You can almost liken it to It's a Wonderful Life in that this is your classic tale of making a believer out of the curmudgeon, but the twist that they put on this movie and all these little holiday touches that should be kitschy and cheesy but actually work to drive the story it's just so brilliant like from the beginning when we first meet scott calvin his parallels to santa are so on the nose but they just work in the context of the story like right from his initials which by the way sc that that should hold a special place to you oh i've always wanted those pajamas <laughs> Um, but yeah, obviously his initials are Scott Calvin, Santa Claus, um, and he works at a toy company. So it it's just perfect. Like I said, it should be really, really on the nose, but it doesn't make you want to roll your eyes. Um, you know, especially because that's juxtaposed against, you know, you would think he'd be all about the holidays working at a toy company, but he's really not. You know, he does have a broken relationship with his son and he's really not prepared for Christmas at all. Like when when he gets Charlie home on Christmas Eve, you do see that there's a tree set up and he's got Charlie's gifts underneath it. But he's supposed to be cooking Charlie dinner and he's in way over his head. Yeah, when he goes four hours, like he, he's trying to cook a turkey and he thinks it's like cooking uh you know like like a chicken and it's gonna be done in an hour and clearly it's late at night um yeah and but but you kind of feel bad for him it's it's clear that he's he's a distracted parent but by no means is he a bad parent right because his character he's not money obsessed like he's got a nice home but he doesn't have like this big elaborate home where you feel like he's only in this for the money and that's why he's kind of a helicopter parent. Um, he's, he's really just a workaholic. I think, I think he, he likes his job. You know, he's, he's well liked in the office. Um, you know, as the movie goes on, you kind of see like he, he jokes with his coworkers a lot and they seem to be, uh, involved with each other on a personal level. I think he's just kind of work obsessed. Yeah. Um, that's that's exactly what it is, and and, and he, he has the best of intentions. Is he's trying to be a good professional so that he can provide for his son? But you can tell that now. Charlie, I I got the feeling Charlie's only about six or seven years old. Thereabouts. Thereabouts. So clearly, he's not had a lot of experience with his son up right. to this point in time. His they are divorced. His wife is already remarried. They already have a home. You have to imagine that. He he's been without his family as a whole for most of Charlie's life. Right, right. And so he never really had the time to to get 
accustomed to being that father. And and you can tell that he really is out of his element, although he's trying very hard. Right. And there is a throwaway line um, before he cooks dinner, once he gets Charlie back to the house to spend Christmas Eve with him, when, when Laura drops him off. Neil's waiting in the car. They're going to go spend Christmas with Neil's family. And he's impatient. He's leaning on the horn for Laura to come out. Um, so... She goes in to get Charlie settled and she immediately starts bickering with Scott. And it seems like an old argument. Um, Scott was late in getting to the house. Um, he was actually at the company Christmas party and claimed that he got stuck in traffic. So that's that's kind of where you almost don't trust him. But that's really like the worst thing he does as far as parenting goes in this movie. Yeah. Um, but then she does make a mention of how he was never around. And you do kind of get that impression that their marriage didn't last very long after Charlie was born because he was kind of an absent parent while they were together. Right. And that escalates when when she starts arguing with him about the do it all for you, Dolly. Yes. And then Charlie comes in and he, why are you guys always fighting? So what I we, we talked about how well developed this movie is. It's a very short period of time that you've actually seen anything on the screen up to this point and what they did that so many movies miss on obviously we know they're not together anymore but little throwaway lines and just it's a very quick little scene but it shows you just how volatile their relationship was in under 10 seconds yeah because he also takes a dig at neil while they're going back and forth and it's not hard to take a dig at neil yeah. I can't stand Neil. I just want to smack him from the minute I see him. And I love Judge Reinhold in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, so I'm very conflicted about this. See, and it's funny you say that because I don't know if I have so much of an issue with Neil as I do with Judge Reinhold. Um, I worked on a show. Uh, it was true inside iconic comedy and... They they did an, a whole episode dedicated to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And Judge Reinhold just glorified his character as such a pivotal role in that movie. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I worked on like a two-hour interview with him. And it was just so self-righteous. And I, I think it just ruins this for me. Interesting. Um, because he's not self-righteous in this movie. He's he's just kind of bland. But I think that that plays into my dislike of Neil. But I think that that's phenomenal casting. I think he was perfect for this. Oh, for sure. And um, even the character, though, he is a perfect foil to Scott. Because in this little throwaway line, I think it's the one that's early on. It's Neil's, Neil's head comes to a point. Mm -hmm. And then he also takes a dig at his profession, which he's a psychiatrist. And Neil keeps referring to himself, himself as, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. And Scott keeps going, no, you're a psychiatrist. Which, I mean, yes, a psychiatrist is a doctor. But he doesn't, Scott doesn't want to acknowledge that because he just wants to keep putting Neil down. And, um, you know, it's exactly what you said is we have talked about this scene probably for longer than it plays out on screen, but oh, yeah. it does such a wonderful job of setting up the the movie as far as giving you the backstory on why Scott and Laura are not together and how he feels about her remarrying Neil. Yeah, and Tim Allen, this is just some fantastic screen time for him, and I, I have to imagine that a lot of this was improv. Oh, yeah. Um, 
And a lot of it had the feel of, like, Tim Taylor. Because remember, when this movie came out, home improvement was a huge deal. Um, this was before Toy Story, so Tim Allen was already a household name. It was 1994, so I'm thinking Toy Story was probably done but not released yet. Yeah, yeah, because Toy Story came out in 95. Yeah. So he had clearly already done the voice work, but he's so good in this role. He's mm. so good as this character. Um, and and to, to piggyback on what you said, he not only goes after Neil, but he goes after Neil's family, who I don't think he's ever <laughs> met. Yeah. He's like, oh, Christmas at the pound. <laughs> Do you know, though, um, and I didn't realize it until recently, because I have this, I own this movie in three separate uh, formats. I have the VHS version, I have the DVD version, I have the Blu-ray version. In the DVD and the Blu-ray version, there's a part of this scene that's actually cut out. I don't think I realized that when we were watching it. When, when Laura gives um, Scott the phone number for Neil's parents' house... Scott looks at the sheet of paper. He goes, 1-800-SPANK-ME. I know this number. Oh, my God. That's right. As it turns out, back in the mid-90s, unbeknownst to the writers, there was a hotline, 1-800-SPANK-ME, and kids were calling it. Oh, my God. So, uh, since then, they uh, they have since deleted that scene from the film. That is hilarious. But oddly enough, see, here's what doesn't make sense about that whole thing, though. If you watch the film on TV, um, they changed uh, the phone number to 1-800-POUND. So why they did 1-800-POUND for the TV version, but then completely cut out the scene or that piece of the scene from the DVD and Blu-ray, I don't know why they didn't just voice it over again. but you already have the audio. You could very easily have done that. That's what the I'm Blu-ray. saying. It just doesn't make sense. But um, yeah, for for those of you who have never seen that, uh, get a copy of the VHS version. And there's a, there's a scene where Scott says he's going to call one eight hundred spank me. That's amazing. Um, yeah. To your point, I think that Tim Allen is perfect casting because even then, you know, in the next scene, you can see dinner's all burnt on the table and. We see him again extinguishing a turkey, which is on fire in the oven. And um, just the way that he's putting it out, I mean, it, it feels so classic 90s, but just the way that Tim Allen does it, I don't think that anybody else could have played this role. Like, I'm trying to think of like another big actor in the 90s, but I don't think, think that they would have bought that that sarcasm that he does. Yeah. You know, um. And when he says, that's why you want a high power fire extinguisher right in the kitchen. It is so Tim Taylor. Yes, exactly. Like, it's like clearly. And I remember thinking that when I was when I was a kid, I was eight years old when this movie came out. And I remember thinking, oh, that's the tool man. Yeah, but not in a way that he feels like a one trick pony. It's hard. Th- like to th- the fact is, as good as this movie is, the glue that holds the movie together is Tim Allen. And I wondered was there anybody who back in the 90s could have played this character the same way? The only person that could have maybe done this was Steve Martin. But the thing with Steve Martin is he was kind of that silver fox from a very early age. Mm -hmm. And the transition would not be so jarring because he'd already have gray hair. 
you know, you kind of need somebody that would age very quickly. That's a really good point because I could totally overlook the fact that just because Steve Martin did go gray early, he's going to look older than his ex-wife and way older than his his son. But like, you do need that for when the hair goes white. I wasn't even thinking about that. That's a really, really good point. Because you kind of have to think like from top to like maybe Martin Short could have done it. But Bar- Martin Short eventually comes up in one of the terrible sequels yeah, where he yeah. plays Jack Frost. Um, but other than those three actors, like Aykroyd, I don't think could have done it because Aykroyd, Aykroyd, I think would have been like, let's just call it what it is. There has to be a full body transformation. I think Aykroyd would have been a little too husky. Like he on his own could almost look like Santa Claus. I was thinking maybe Tom Hanks, but I can never see him in the role of absentee father ever. Santa, yes, but I don't think he, he's just too nice and to pull thing, that off. But the thing was, at this point in time, you're thinking 1994, Tom Hanks wasn't really doing the comedic roles anymore. You know, he yeah, wasn't he doing was... the burbs and the money pit and big. He was now doing Apollo 13 yeah. and Forrest Gump. He was He was starting to become that dramatic actor. He had the Disney contract because he did Toy Story, obviously. Right. But yeah, as far as the comedies go, that ship sailed. Yeah, Bill. Oh, Bill Murray. Hmm. That would have been oh, interesting. Your boy. That would have been interesting. Actually, Bill Murray probably could have pulled it off, but yeah. he wouldn't have done it as well. The fact is, of all these actors we're talking about. I don't think anybody could have done it as good as Tim Allen. I think I think any of them could have done a, a nice job. Yeah, I think Bill Murray has the sarcasm, but I don't know if he could pull off Jolly Santa the he same way it, Tim Allen does. He could do it now as he's gotten older, and I think he's humbled a little bit. Yes. But I think Bill Murray in the mid-90s, no, I don't think he could have made that full circle. Exactly. So with all that being said, folks, uh, Tim Allen was perfect casting, if you haven't figured that out by now. But we're interested in hearing what you have to say. You can also you know, tweet at us um, or write to us on Facebook at Monorail Radio. Do you think there's anybody other than Tim Allen that could have played this role? I was actually going to say there is another example of his perfect casting. In that next scene after the turkey goes on fire, uh, there's a lot of restaurants that are closed. And uh, he takes Charlie to Denny's. So... There's in the first room of Denny's, there's a a Japanese meeting going on and all the tables are taken. So she takes him to the back and it's like looking in a mirror. There's a lot of like younger sons with their fathers. And it's almost like a 90s trope of that, like single parent where the dad is the fish out of water and they don't know how to properly care for the child when the mother's not around. So you saw it's all single fathers in that room. Oh yeah. And Tim Allen just kind of looks around and gives them like a knowing glance. And then he even says to another father, like you burnt the Turkey. And the guy actually waves up his gauzed hand because he's been treated for burns on the Turkey. Yeah. Um, It's a throwaway, but it's just one of those things that makes this movie so brilliant. And like I said, it, it that's kind of a 90s trope, but it doesn't feel dated. Correct. And I'm sorry, Charlie, but who doesn't want to eat at Denny's? Like, I would go to Denny's right now. Well, this Denny's was out of everything, so I can't really... I, I gotta say that. We've talked about how brilliant Tim Allen is. Um, I, I think... The actor who plays Charlie is wonderful. Yeah. But in the beginning, Charlie annoys me almost as much as Neil does. Like, I just don't typically like those 
all-knowing quit machine children. And that's what he starts out as, is like this little snotty know-it-all. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I felt like versus a lot of, of those those other child actors in the 90s that this was actually downplayed quite a bit. In fact, I, I tend to like Charlie more than most of those all-knowing, as you said, the all-knowing quip machines from the 90s. I, I thought that he was kind of watered down. And if anything, I thought that his sort of melancholy attitude was just a product of having a strained relationship with his father. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's not what I'm going after. But he was a little bratty. My issue is when he quoted Neil. But that also plays... It, it's one of those things that does drive the story forward because here he is, Neil's spending all this time with him and he's getting in his head. And this is also what's straining the relationship because he is, whether he intends to or not, sort of turning Charlie against his father. Oh, he's absolutely trying. There's no doubt in my mind that Neil is manipulating that relationship yeah. between Charlie and Scott. Yeah, it's that's obvious from the beginning. I, I I don't think that there's anything questionable there. I think it's completely intentional. And and you you can attest to this. How many times do we go out to a restaurant, and if they either have asabuco on the menu, <laughs> or if it's or if it's a special, how often do I turn around and say, "You like asabuco, Charlie?" Every single, Every single time one. because of this movie. It doesn't have to be on the menu. We were eating at Blue Bayou and you said it. That's <laughs> true. There was no asabuco on that menu. It's true. For, I don't know why, but th- but every now and again, a line from a movie just strikes me and stays with me. For whatever reason, the line from this movie that has stuck with me since 1994 is, you like asabuco, Charlie? I don't know. But you know why? Because... What what child is going to eat asabuco? <laughs> like you like it, you're a 39 year old businessman. Like it just it's like you are so detached from reality. But there are so many more quotable. Li- this this movie I would say is as quotable as Home Alone, and right. Home Alone's chock full. But the same thing with Home Alone, and you know this because I do it on every vacation. Every vacation we go on, it's the same thing. It is not the most quotable line in the movie, but for whatever reason, every time they call us on our group to get onto either Southwest or JetBlue, I pick up our bags and I go, come on, Eileen, they're boarding. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Not even give this to Kevin. (laughs) No. The most most out-of-nowhere movie lines are the ones that stick with me. But this one's great. It is such a throwaway, but it's memorable. But it actually, but is, but you know what? The more you think about it, the more it does make sense, and the and and the more it does add value to the film. As I said to you, no throwaway is actually the wrong way to put it because it does drive that home. No child is going to eat that, but but he doesn't he doesn't have that concept in his mind. Right. It just shows. I don't want to say he's inept as a parent, but he is just. To, to use the phrase you said before, total fish out of water. And it's also interesting, too, because as somebody who works at a toy company, you think that they would be a lot more in tune with children. And, yeah, it really does drive the point home that he's just so not. Yeah. Um, and then you, you get back to, to the house after the disaster that is Denny's. Um and but he's you know and he's trying he's reading Charlie the night before Christmas and mm-hmm. he's you know uh, you just you feel so bad for Scott especially too because at this point we've learned that Charlie has 
stopped believing in Santa Claus and Laura and Neil supported that decision without consulting Scott. Right, because one of the kids at school told him there's no Santa and Laura's like, well, we just explained that Santa's more of a feeling. Right, and that's how this bickering fight started that we were referring to before, is that Scott felt left out of the decision. Um, And... Charlie is now, he's like kneeling the whole situation because everything that Scott is reading, he's questioning. And Scott is trying his hardest to give an explanation for everything that happens in the night before Christmas. I almost said nightmare before Christmas because Mm -hmm. Disney has ruined me. Um, But he's really trying not to force Charlie to believe, but I think more to get him to think for himself about what he wants to believe. It's funny because I don't think that this was ever the intention of Disney, but part of what makes this movie timeless is that we live in a society now where children are very literal Mm -hmm. and they don't, they don't have a lot of imagination anymore. Everything is, oh no, but that, no, that this is how it really is. You know, it's like, I, I work at a place where you have a lot of children, right? And I watched once. When I was a kid, I used to run around and whatever you found in the yard, you could turn into something. You pick up a stick, it became a lightsaber, you know, where you, you know, you pick up a, we used to run around with a backpack on and a flashlight and we would, we'd play Ghostbusters and pretend it was our proton pack. Mm -hmm. I saw a kid once pick up a stick and say, oh, I have a sword. And the parents said, that's not a sword, that's a stick. And they're like, no, but I'm, I'm pretending. They're like, but no, that's, that's a stick. Like that's that's the that's the society that we live in now. Yeah. I think that creativity as a whole and imagination as a whole has been taken away from so many children because the parents try this whole we're going to talk about feelings and we're going to we're going to be we're going to be an open book with our kids like no, sometimes a stick is a sword. Sometimes a flashlight is a proton pack. And sometimes you have to let a kid be a kid and e- believe in Santa. Exactly. I don't think that was Disney's intention, that they knew that this was the society that we were going to Yeah, this become. was 1994. I don't think they were trying to see into the future, but it that's, again, why this movie is still so relevant now, and it still works now, and it doesn't feel like a dated 90s movie because... It, it applies to today's society. Yeah, other than like the cars in the movie, nothing else seems outdated. Right. There. Well, there's one questionable line, but we'll get to that. It, it's in the next scene. So after Charlie goes to sleep, uh, after they've read The Night Before Christmas, Charlie does actually ask Scott to leave milk and cookies out for Santa just in case. So you can see he's still kind of teetering and I think that that's Neil's influence of him being so overly analytical about it. Um, so Charlie's w- woken up in the middle of the night because he hears a noise on the roof and Scott goes outside to check it out. He's like, do you know how to call 911? And Charlie's like, yeah, you call 911. So Scott immediately thinks that something is wrong, that they're being burglarized or Something's something's amiss. Something's, something's arise somewhere. Yes. Uh, so he goes to check it out and Santa's on his roof. And of course, he doesn't believe what he's seeing right in front of him. He's like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? And he scares Santa and Santa slides down off the roof. Um, 
this is where this movie has such a brilliant setup because Scott's immediate focus is, oh no, this guy fell off my roof. I'm going to be held legally accountable for this. Who saw me and how can I get away with this? Not even realizing that you just killed Santa, essentially, until Charlie comes out. Do you know the original premise of this movie? Wasn't that Santa fell off the roof intentionally? The original script had Scott going outside with a gun and shooting Santa off the roof. Yeah. And Michael Eisner said, I can't have Tim Allen kill Santa Claus in a Disney movie. Right. So if they made it Buzz an accident. Buzz Lightyear killing Santa Claus in a movie. Yeah. Um, but I think that works so much better, though, because I love the idea that they're setting up that, first of all, anyone can be Santa. And you have to inherit it. And it glosses over the fact that like Santa just died. Yeah, yeah. That's the funny thing. You have now an empty suit that needs to be filled and presents that need to be delivered. And that sets up the entire rest of the film. Yeah. Um, and it's done in a very funny way because who doesn't like seeing somebody fall off a roof? This is why America's Funniest Home Videos is still a thing. Yeah. This is why YouTube fails are popular. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. We like seeing other people fall down. And get hurt. Yeah. So um, I think that it's something that is is done in a funny way. I agree that you can't have the tool man kill Santa Claus yeah, intentionally. That, that was a been, smart choice. Yeah, that was of, of a lot of the decisions that uh, Michael Eisner made that later became questionable. This is one that I think you can defend. No, we best not have Tim Allen shoot Santa Claus off a roof. No, and I'm also not normally a supporter of, oh, that's so insensitive and leave it alone. It doesn't matter. I just think that this makes for a better story. Yeah. Um, because it, 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 cause the thing is, if, he, if it would have been the other way around, let's say that they would have kept the original script and Scott shoots Santa Claus. Um, it's almost as if now Scott is facing a punishment for what he's done. Whereas this, it becomes an unintentional circumstance. It removes the comedy of it if it becomes more like a punishment than anything else. That's a really, really good point. The film, because forget the fact that we just watched him. I can't believe I'm saying the words out loud. (laughs) Tim Allen just shot Santa Claus off the roof. Um, I think it loses all the comedy. And you do lose your story because part of this is that Tim Allen is now the reluctant hero and Charlie has to convince him to go fulfill this. Now, what is his duty? Right. There's a great throwaway line once they're up on the roof and Tim Allen is in the sleigh uh, and he's like, here's your Christmas present, Charlie. We're getting the Disney Channel. Merry Christmas. And uh, I love that Disney manages to poke fun at themselves in that moment. Can we talk about the sleigh for a moment? And more specifically, the reindeer. Yeah, absolutely. They are so impressive. They really are. The the animatronics that they used for these reindeer look so lifelike. The movements are amazing. And what I love about Comet in particular is not that you needed a lot of comic relief in this movie because it is very funny, but he becomes another character that offers a bit of comic relief and does so without any spoken word. Yeah. Just the just the way that his face emotes things and the way that his body moves. It's so impressive to not only whoever developed those puppets but also those puppeteers. I think they might have used a combo of 
animatronics and then CGI on some of the close-ups because it it's so expressive at some point. But um, I also love that they pick comic and they kind of picked like an underdog and they didn't just default to Rudolph. Rudolph's had enough of the glory. Right. You don't even see Rudolph. In no, you don't. You don't. But I, I think that was also a smart choice because Scott needs to figure out his new role and Rudolph is kind of known for like leading the way. And I think that that just would have been too easy to just go with it because now, you know, Charlie's pouting and ultimately Charlie convinces him to put the suit on and just kind of go with this. And Scott kind of realizes that he's stuck. He doesn't really have much of a choice anymore because the the reindeer are all, they're not moving off of this roof until the presents are delivered. And then the bag kind of takes over because the gifts that are supposed to go under the tree magically appear in the bag. And then the bag is what gets him down the chimney. Um, so after the first house, he kind of realizes that he can't stop. And that's that's another thing that I love about this movie is that he he doesn't believe in any of it yet, but he kind of knows that he's obligated to do this for more than just his son. Yeah. Charlie's what keeps driving him to do it because he's essentially guilt tripping him into this. And, you know, he says, he's like, why don't we ever do anything I want to do? I want to go deliver the presents. And he's out delivering the presents all night. Yeah, and you can tell that by the end of the night, he's, uh, we're done, Comet, ho, ho, ho. And he gives you that, he gives you that Tim Taylor, ho, ho, ho. Um, and then, when I get up, I'm getting a CAT scan. Yeah. So, you're like, <laughs> it's, you're like, he's he sort of come around to the idea, but at the same time, it's almost as if he's laughing it off because he knows that none of it can be real. Right. Even, like, when uh, he gets busted by, there's a little girl that's waiting for Santa, and this is another one of my favorite lines. Yeah. Um, actually we're getting a little bit ahead, uh, ahead of it. Um, the first house that he visits, he's chased out by a Rottweiler. And when he gets up to the top, the Rottweiler has now woken up the entire house and you can hear somebody's coming down to chase him. When you can hear gunshots. Yes. And that's, that is the nineties line that I keep referring to when he gets out and Charlie's like, how did it go? And he's like, it felt like America's most wanted. <laughs> yeah. And that is really the only thing that dates this film, I think. Yeah, because America's Most Wanted is not something that you see on TV anymore. Mm -hmm. um, he must have been like he must have been delivering toys to a stormtrooper's house because that guy was just firing <laughs> his gun into nothing <laughs> and yeah. hitting nothing yeah. and shooting at nothing. And I like that too, though, because it does almost nod to your original plan for the script of Santa getting shot off the roof. What's I love the line too where. They're up on the first house and he grabs the sack of toys and it starts to hover and, and Charlie goes, Dad, you're flying. And he goes, that's <laughs> oh, okay. I lived through the 60s. Yes. And that's where this film was always intended to be just as much for adults as it was for kids. And that's why I still think it's so funny. Um, but yeah, then at the second house too, there's a little girl that's asleep in a chair waiting for Santa. She's near the tree and he does wake her up. And... It's part of this reluctant hero that starts to develop with his character because he doesn't want to do this. He's not used to it yet. He can't believe that he just went into a house where there actually was no chimney, but he still doesn't ruin the magic for her. It's in the same way that Charlie questioned everything that was happening in the night before Christmas. She's asking him, 
why the suit is so big on him because he doesn't have his Santa weight yet. <laughs> and in my favorite line, this is the one, I don't know what your Asabuco line that stuck with you, where that's coming from, but this is my line. Santa's been watching his saturated fats. It's hilarious. I laugh every time still. And I've seen this movie at, at least once a year since it came out. The only time in that scene where he kind of alludes to the fact that he's not Santa Claus is she goes, Santa? And he goes, Scott Calvin. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, he, he totally goes along with it. I am lactose intolerant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it the, the smallest things... You notice that he doesn't take any of the cookies. What does he take? The celery, the celery stick. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, he was he was a health conscious kind of guy in the beginning. Yeah. And he, he very quickly turns into, I want cheesecake and cookies and ice cream and milk. And, you know, it, it plays into that character development. Yeah. Little things that you don't pick up on the first time you see the movie. But the more you see it, you go, oh, they placed that too. Like really, really did a nice job. And they do a wonderful job, too, of bringing that full circle because at the end he goes back to the oh, same house a year later. It might be my favorite scene in the movie. It's adorable. Uh, she leaves him soy milk because he's lactose intolerant. And he he's like, I think your milk is a little sour. And uh, she was like, you said you were lactose intolerant. And he's like, I did say that. And he puts his hands Thanks on his Thanks for remembering. Hip. Yeah. And it's, I don't want to say it's the first time you see him as Santa Claus. But it's the first time that you see him fully embrace who he is without Charlie being there. Exactly. Exactly. That scene in that movie is so important at the end of that film. And I think it often gets overlooked because there is so much else that happens in this movie. Right. No, it's just because... I think it's masked by how funny it is because he makes such an absurd face when he has the soy milk and it's a really touching moment, but you're right. It brings the character full circle. The movie doesn't push forward and there's no character arc without that moment. Right. And it's, it, it's not just full circle in the sense that he embraces that he's Santa Claus, but also we were talking about it earlier that He's not money hungry. He's just a workaholic. And now we see how dedicated he is to being Santa. Right. Exactly right. You know, you you go from it's it's that he he has changed in terms of embracing the magic of Christmas. He's physically changed. He's mentally changed in that he now believes the magic of being Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. But at the root of it, he's still the same person. Yes. It's just that. His workaholic mentality now brings joy to the world rather than brings stress to his family. Right. And now he's going to do it for every kid and not just his own. And as Santa Claus, you have to have that mentality. Yes. Or else the magic of Christmas just does not exist. Christmas itself, separate from the religious uh, meanings, Christmas itself fails if Santa doesn't care. Yes. So I like the fact that he still stays true to Scott Calvin. Right. And that's why, you know, in the next act, it's so funny when we actually get him to the North Pole. Because even though he doesn't quite believe what he's just done, he still did it. He got all the presents out. Christmas is done. Now he wants to go home and 
you know, wake up from this dream, as he says. Um, so they get back to the North Pole. And this is where, as a kid, I truly, truly fell in love with this movie because this is my favorite depiction of what the North Pole is in any movie ever. A lot of movies have done a really nice job of showing the North Pole. Um, I love the North Pole in the original Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special that you see on TV. Um, I think Elf does a nice job of portraying it. Yeah. But I agree. I think the best portrayal of what the North Pole is... What you imagine it to be? is, is, ...is this movie because, frankly... You know what this reminded me of as a kid was it was less less of a factory and more of like being an FAO Schwartz, if any of you are from New York. To me, like the peek behind the curtain almost kind of reminds me of like a Willy Wonka type of thing. Right. Because you're you're seeing all the elves at work. It's just it's such a whimsical at times almost steampunk looking yes. toy store. Yeah. And that's why, to me, it, it felt like that old store. And a lot of people have seen FAO Schwartz on television. They used it in Home Alone 2. It was, uh, but it wasn't called FAO Schwartz. It was um, Duncan's Toy Duncan's Chest. Duncan's Toy Chest. Yeah. Right. That was FAO Schwartz. Um, and, and off topic, when they were shooting Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, we had gone into the city. And we were going to FAO Schwartz and we saw it decorated as Duncan's toy chest. And we went, what happened? How is this the first time hearing of this? Uh, I don't know. It never came up. (laughs) And then when we went back again, we're like, oh, it's FAO Schwartz again. Okay. It wasn't until we saw the movie and we were like, oh, that's FAO Schwartz. But we saw it as a film set. Funny you should say that. I'll go on record. I'll, I'll admit to this one. Um, I was in the city probably in the fall ish. Um, and we were walking through Central Park and I I don't know why there were just some rocks that looked off to me. So I kicked one. I don't know why that was like my initial instinct, I guess, because I didn't want to pick it up. I mean, it's Central Park. You don't pick things up. God knows where they've been. So I like nudged it a little bit. And it was made of styrofoam. So then I start kicking them because I was like, why do we need fake rocks in Central Park? And then I look around and I notice they're planting a whole bunch of trees. And I was like, that's really odd. It's the fall. Why are you planting them now? So we get out of the park and we see all these trucks and these rigs and everything. And I realized very quickly that, oh, they're shooting a movie here. So we actually went up and we asked what they were filming. And they were like, oh, it's this new Will Ferrell movie. So yes, yes, I did destroy the set of Elf. And now, now that I've worked in this industry and know how hard it is, I feel awful. Well, you were in about high, it. you were in high school at the time. You didn't know. I didn't know. I I just well, first of all, they should have had some kind of PA or set security locking well, this down. What I can't understand. Was, there how was, was there nobody, nobody there? there. There was nobody there. I just thought somebody put fake rocks in Central Park, and I was like, this doesn't belong. No, but you know what? Central Park's the type of place where you would put fake rocks. Be like, they're they're more environmentally sound than real rocks. <laughs> because they can't hurt people. It blows my mind. Like, I remember when I saw the Duncan thing, you couldn't get anywhere near FAO Schwartz. And part of that was because Macaulay Culkin was on set. Yeah. No, so this, I, I saw a setup. But I didn't how? have any actors there. How? It, it was so different back then. I think, you know... 
now that film has kind of branched out, I mean, they call Georgia Hollywood South. You know, there's so much down there. There's so much shooting in New York. I feel like it's not as rare. And they're also like so much is being produced now, not just for movie studios, but you've got Netflix and there's so much TV and like it's just so oversaturated. I think that's part of it, too, is that like when we were kids, it was so rare that you saw anything filming and nobody knew when it was happening. So if you happen to stumble across it, which is really just kind of how you discovered something, I feel like for something like that, they were probably there for a couple of days because it wasn't just him going into um, into the toy store when he buys the turtle doves, but like when he comes back later to break the window, you had to be there for like two or three days doing that setup. So if you saw it the day before, I have to imagine now you know Macaulay Culkin's there, you're going back. Right. Yeah, yeah. But those are, those are uh, two other... Christmas movies that are not produced by Disney. So other than this, we ignore them on this show. <laughs> now that we've gone off on that tangent. But it was no, but it's a relevant tangent though. Yeah. It absolutely is, in my opinion. Because for those people that I'm saying FAO Schwartz, but if you're not from the New York metropolitan area, you don't know what FAO Schwartz is. Right. No, it's true because it's not it's not like Toys R Us or something where you've seen it everywhere. Right. When you could see Toys R Us. That's another tangent I'm not even going to get into. I'm not I'm not even going to let you go there because we will be here for another hour. I miss Jeffrey. Um, so anyway, they're up at the North Pole. And um, for me, David Kromholtz as Bernard the Elf steals this scene. I remember before I really knew who David Kromholtz was, he was such a this character was such a big takeaway in this movie for me because you've got this sarcastic, almost jaded elf. Um, you know, they've just landed on Christmas morning and his biggest concern is we've only got 365 days until we have to do this again. And he's got all, he's like the head elf and he's got everybody else working. And he's the one to, who explains to Scott Calvin what the Santa Claus is and why he is now Santa. Right, clause is being the last line of a contract. Yes, and he shows him the fine print on Santa's business card where it says, essentially, if you put on the suit, you're the big guy. And you start to see Tim Allen's eyes bug out as he's reading along. Yeah. <laughs> so good. But what was so impressive to me is for such a young actor at the time, like David Kromholtz just got it. And like I'm right. so surprised because you know the name is like a bit part actor now, but... I feel like he should just have been in so many more films. The he's thing, done a he's done a lot, but he's not like a huge household name. Well, he was on Numbers, and and he did over a hundred episodes of that. Then he had that show Partners. It got canceled, and he was on, um, he was on wasn't he on Freaks and Geeks with Jason Segel too, and that got canceled. I, I think. believe so because he does run in that circle. He was in um, This Is the End. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but after this, he did a lot of like teen comedies. Like he was in Ten Things I Hate About You, and he played like such a nerd in that. He he was you know he was sixteen years old when he made this movie, but he was actually a really good actor. That's what I'm saying. Like he just understood the character so well, and he stole the scene for me. But not just understood the character well, but remember now, Tim Allen is is a grown man who does not yet believe that he's Santa Claus talking to a child dressed as an elf who's telling him, you're Santa Claus now? And 
David Kromholtz does such a good job of not only creating tension, mm-hmm. but taking authority. There's no reason why yes. somebody that young should have authority over someone twice their age. Right. But not only has authority, but commands the respect. Yeah. He does such a good job. And that's more than just how the character is written. That's the actor. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying is like I just it was so memorable that scene in that character. And I, I think it's all because of him. Yeah, I remember when we watched it for the first time and he was like, you, know, you wouldn't want to kill the Christmas of spirit now, would you? Yes. Santa. And I just remember people in the in the audience at the movie theater just went. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Like, he really does put him in his place. Yeah, he, and he goes for it. He totally goes for it. And something I've almost always overlooked, I really just noticed it now for the first time when we were watching it the other night. Um, as they're kind of going through, you're so focused on Bernard just driving the point home that you're Santa now. They're walking through the workshop and Scott picks up a tool belt and he kind of like tries it on. So I yeah. love that little nod to home improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, um, even bringing Judy in, yeah, you know, and she's, what was she, she was 500 years old or 600 years old? More than that, because her hot cocoa recipe took her 1200 years to get right. That's right. And he was like, and he he goes, you look good for your age. Thanks, but I'm seeing someone in rapping. Yeah. Coming out of the mouth of a child. Yeah. Is so funny. Aside from the fact that it, she's over twelve hundred years old, now just hearing hearing a a kid who can't be more than ten years old telling a grown man, "Don't put the moves on me because I have somebody else." Yeah, and I think that that's something that you is kind of over your head as a child if you're like a really young child watching this. Um, but definitely, that was that was for the adults. I thought that it was a brilliant concept to make the elves children. That's what I love about this depiction of the North Pole, too, especially because you've got the one stressed out, angsty elf who's got to convince this man that he's Santa. But this conversation that he has with Judy, they have such a heart to heart. And she tells him that seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. And that's why kids can see Santa and they know that the North Pole is real. And adults have lost that. Which is funny because... In every Christmas movie, not just this one, random gifts show up under the tree that Santa Claus has delivered. Never once does any adult or any parent who has forgotten about the spirit of Christmas or questioned the existence of Santa Claus, never do they question, where did these extra free gifts come from? Right. I didn't buy that. Where did it come from? Exactly. And I I always just kind of laughed at that. And especially in this movie, because you see that Santa exists, clearly, Mm -hmm. but the parents never question it. Right. Now, the parents who believe, of course, are not going to question it, but like Laura and Neil, who think Santa Claus is a belief. It's been years of getting random gifts. Never thought to ask a question before. Right. Just kind of something I picked up on that I thought was noteworthy. So one of the brilliant things that this movie does as well is acknowledge that Santa is a real person and he doesn't need to be 
in the North Pole for a full year. Bernard tells him that you report back at Thanksgiving. Otherwise, go live your life. So we see the passage of time, and now it's career day at Charlie's school. And this is another instance where this movie just sets things up so brilliantly because he's got Scott there, and he's also got Neil and Laura. And uh, in in another really humorous line, they had a firefighter uh, talking about his career and the teacher goes out and she's everything that comes out of her mouth is funny. She's just such a total space cadet. So she's like, we're sorry about your your partner. Now would be a good time to bring up our resident psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to bring up Neil, but Charlie wants his, his biological father to go first. So he gets up in front of the whole room and he's been mentioning at home to Neil and Laura what happened and they keep just writing it off as you know not just that they're disturbed after they've already had a conversation with Charlie about Santa but that he's he's really not getting over it so essentially now he stands up in front of his whole class tells them what happened and that his dad is Santa Claus and luckily this is where Scott's profession plays in perfectly to this movie because He's like, I'm like Santa. I work at a toy company. My initials are SC. Uh, and then, you know, it's just kind of like Tim Allen jokes. And he's like, I work hard one day a year. Um, so they're able to kind of downplay it. But the tension escalates because this is when Laura and Neil start to realize that this is a problem. Right. And and on the outside looking in, an adult that does not believe in Santa Claus is led to believe that this child is starting to have delusions of grandeur and his father, who is clearly trying to, it it appears that he's trying to keep him all to himself, is not doing anything to ground his son. He keeps filling his head with this. So there's concern for the child's welfare because he's starting to believe in things that these people say don't exist and his father is telling him that it's real and it's a cause for concern. Yeah, it's, It's almost like the route they took in Mrs. Doubtfire where they started to say that it was a danger to the child's well-being. I mean, granted, Tim Allen is becoming Santa Claus, not dressing in drag to be close to his children. He's not in disguise. Exactly. Uh, But they think that that's what he's doing. They think that now at this point, Tim Allen is or Scott Calvin has already started to transform. He's put on a little bit of weight and his hair is starting to gray. So they they start to think that he's doing this just to make Charlie like him and play into this belief in Santa Claus, and that's how he's trying to hook him. Yeah. Um, I love how, with this transformation too, the stages of denial that they go through are so smart. Not just as far as Scott Calvin being shocked over his own appearance, but... Everyone in his life is trying to explain this. Like Neil is trying to logically explain why he's behaving this way, which is to kind of win his son back over. Then at work, they're concerned about his weight gain and his health, and they think maybe he's just stressed from work. And then he finally goes to the doctor, and they they write it off as him being middle-aged and that it's hormones that he put on this weight and that he's his hair is graying. Meanwhile, he says, I put on 45 pounds in a in week. In a week, right. And he's perfectly healthy otherwise. The fat suit. Ugh. Okay. 
I remember when this movie came out, they had a making of on TV. I don't recall if it was on ABC or the Disney Channel, but I remember watching it before the movie came out Mm -hmm. and them showing the fat suit before they put it on him and how much detail was involved. And I thought at the time, wow, this looks real. It's so impressive, this makeup. And and this this suit that they put on him, which I think actually was like fifty pounds. It was not a light uh, garment for him to be wearing. It was actually very heavy. And watching it now, it's still as impressive as it was from the day I saw it for the first time. Yeah, because in that doctor scene, they go in for a close up with the stethoscope because his heartbeat is actually now the tune of Jingle Bells as he's transforming, and. They weren't afraid to go for that shot because it was so seamless. You know, he's got like this huge, you know, the bowl full of jelly belly. And they even, I I think, brought it all the way up his chest. And you really can't see the edges. It's so seamless. Yeah. I'm also curious, too, um, if they did his face or if he did put on a little bit of weight just to you know kind of get rid of the jawline and give him that double chin um if it's makeup it's flawless but i'm wondering if tim tim allen didn't have to put on like 20 or 30 pounds for this i'm not sure what i'd have it's to hard do, to tell what i'd have to do is go back and watch some episodes of home improvement from like 1993 Right, because you'd see it. Because you'd see it You'd there. see it start, yeah. The same way that like, you see it in Jason Siegel on How I Met Your Mother when he did I Love You, Man, and he grew his hair out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see it on the show. Right. That's the only thing I can compare it to, really. When you had a major star who was doing television and TV at the same time where they would have gone through such a transformation physically. Now, obviously, there's a difference between growing your hair out and, and putting on 30 pounds, but... In recent history, I don't, I can't recall another instance where that would be the case. Right, because for something like this, you know, usually if you've got a film actor, you have time in between where you can either gain the weight or put on muscle or whatever it is that you're doing. If you're filming, if you're a television star and you're filming, theoretically it's when the show is on hiatus, but to do a weight gain like this, you have to start during during the television season. Right. Um, so now, um, there's another brilliant scene where Scott is kind of still in denial about what's happening to him. And this is, um, the boardroom scene at work. Oh, yes. Uh, so now he's gained a noticeable amount of weight. His hair is completely gray and none of his clothes fit him. So he shows up for work in a sweatsuit. And his coworkers take notice of this right away. And he's still not necessarily owning that he's Santa, but he's starting to acknowledge what's happening to him. And they order lunch before their meeting. And he orders a salad, which you'll see is later completely untouched. It's left on the table and like every dessert on the menu. First of all, I don't know what office unless they're catering lunch from somewhere has like a menu and a waiter every day but it kind of establishes that he's like a big wig at this company well some of these office buildings they'll have shared spaces and they'll have a common kitchen area that'll feed five or ten different companies right but they're actually like taking lunch orders right. in this office um so when he's finally done eating and 
none of his coworkers believe his excuses for why he's put on this weight. Um, they're doing a presentation for next week's like big Christmas toy. Um, and I, I just love how this scene like serves two purposes that it shows that he's, he's gaining the weight and something's happening to him. But also like now you start to see where he's starting to think like Santa because this toy that they're making is Santa in like a, it's like Santa GI Joe. He's in a tank, the total tank. Yeah. And, um, Scott flips out and he's like, where are the reindeer? Are you kidding me? You can't have Santa roll up in a tank. And you can see where he's just taking this way too personally. Yeah. Getting really defensive and he screams, incoming. (laughs) It just took out the Peterson home. Yeah. And what happened to the elves? The elves are supposed to be all sparkly and childlike. Yeah. Um. So now this is where you start to see that like he can't really deny it anymore. And uh, when he gets home, he gets the list delivered. He's still trying to uh, to shave and dye his hair. Nothing is working for him at this point. And then FedEx shows up with the list, as in he's checking it twice. Armand Asante. <laughs> but what I love about what the movie did here, too, is that, again, you're bringing Santa into the real world and treating him as a real person because you've got a package delivery and he's actually got to go through this thing now. Yeah, four FedEx trucks filled with boxes of papers. And Santa's working remotely from the North Pole. Yeah. it's uh, And he tries to chase them down and they won't come back. And then he's walking around the street and he's just picking people out. Oh, naughty, nice, naughty, nice. Like he just, what's amazing is he starts to recognize these people. He knows exactly who they are. But, at, but even as this is happening, he's almost not fully convinced that he's Santa Claus. He knows all these random people. He knows whether they've been naughty or nice, but he's not fully there yet. And he's even, I don't know if you noticed this too, the the farther it goes, yes. he starts dressing more and more like Santa. With the red and the white and the green. Yeah, first it starts as red and green, but like by the time we hit Thanksgiving, he's got a full on like ugly reindeer sweater going. Yep. And pom-pom hat. Yes. Um, but Yeah, oh God. Uh, but that's really where the point is driven home because he has to report back. And at this point, Neil and Laura, who I haven't hit on this yet, but I really don't believe them as a couple for a second. Oh, I absolutely do. I don't know if that's again, because Neil is just so bland, but they don't seem in love at all. And maybe that serves the greater purpose of the movie because after being with Scott, Laura just kind of wants somebody that's going to be like the normal family man. Somebody who's stable and very literal in his life. Exactly. But I just, I don't see it with them together. Like, there's no chemistry. I think that the two of them being so bland as human beings is enough. I think that they are a perfect match. I know that they say opposites attract, but in this case, I feel like... That's the exact person that she needed in her life. And more importantly, I think that's the exact person she wanted for Charlie. Probably. But that's where it kind of loses it a little bit for me because Mm -hmm. there's no chemistry between the two of them. Like it definitely works for for Charlie's purpose, but I I feel like they just could have like 
develop the relationship a little bit more. And they, I mean, they kind of do when they talk about their own belief in Santa and why they stopped believing in what they wanted as children. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, I don't know that that just wasn't enough for me. Okay. Um, but yeah, now they've cut off Scott Calvin completely from his child and it's Thanksgiving and he goes by the house because he knows he has to report back and he wants to say goodbye to Charlie. And this is the moment where Charlie makes him believe and finally see it. And that Laura and Neil kind of see that like, this isn't just a phase with, with Charlie believing in Santa anymore. And they, but they write it off as like something is seriously wrong. Right. Um, so luckily, Bernard shows up and they decide to go back to the North Pole this time with Charlie. And I love that now Scott has embraced the idea that he's Santa. And now that he believes himself, his biggest concern is what happens now if somebody kills me. And all he cares about is what happens if I fall off a roof. Right. Um, so they've, and this is again where I love this depiction of the North Pole because the elves have modernized Santa's suit. They made it flame retardant. Uh, they've made all these like techie adjustments to the sleigh. Um, but they really haven't addressed that, that one more thing. Actually, the one who addresses it is Comet to make sure that Santa doesn't fall off the roof and he gives Scott a rope. Yeah. Yeah. That was a nice little scene. Yeah. Because there was kind of always that tension between Comet and and Scott. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to sort of see them mend that fence. That's the thing. This movie does a great job of coming full circle and tying up every relationship. Everything. Yeah. Even down to the relationship with the reindeer. Right. Um, there was something I wanted to touch on before and I, I forgot to do it. You have a fireplace in your house that you, for the most part, grew up in. I don't mm-hmm. know much about your original house. Did no, you have was, a fireplace? No. Okay. I in, never, the house I was raised in, though, yes. That I never had a fireplace in my house. Right. So I always wondered, well, if Santa comes down the chimney, where does Santa come in my house? I never, I could never figure it out. I'm like, Santa just walks through the front door. Why can't I hear him? Like when I was a kid. So when they addressed that Santa can go down any, you know, because every house has... If not a chimney, they at least have that exhaust pipe so that you keep an airflow for those of you who aren't plumbers. Every house has this so that it, c- it creates an airflow. Right. That way, water has a way to flow through your house and through your drains. I love how they're able to take that and create, out of nothing, a chimney. I remember watching this going, oh, okay, that's how he gets in. Cool. And I never thought anything of it after that. Exactly. And I think for a lot of kids who didn't have a chimney, that was a really creative way of explaining how Santa comes in your house, other than just climbing through a window or a door. Okay, well, I think that you're asking the wrong person, and I'm not sure that I'm going to forgive you for setting me up. Well, now we have to tell the story because I didn't set anything up. You absolutely did. No, you've outed yourself. No, you've been planning this. So Jackie, according to her father... Um, Who loves to tell this story. Was afraid of Santa Claus as a kid because you want to talk about being a very literal kid. You would have done well in 2018 as a five-year-old. Wondered, who is this man and why are they breaking into my home? And you were not comfortable with the idea of Santa Claus entering your house. 
Okay, we should preface this with, I was born in Queens and my parents did an excellent job of driving the point home. Don't talk to strangers. Don't take anything from them. Don't take candy. Don't get in the white van. Uh, Okay, I grew up in the suburbs where the worst thing that happened was kids got chased away on skateboards and my parents taught me the same thing. You talk about Queens Village (laughs) like it's Bedford Stuyvesant. (laughs) Or South Central. Well... Regardless, they drove the point home. And for me, I don't know why that terrified me as a child. I was not okay with the idea of a man breaking into our home in the middle of the night while everyone else was asleep and my parents had no idea what was going on. And my dad will to this day, he thinks it's hilarious. And he's like, what child is afraid of Santa? What child is uncomfortable with the idea of someone leaving them presents? So when I was a kid, I made my parents promise me that they were going to tell Santa to leave the presents on the stoop. And that was how we dealt with this. (sighs) Some of us wonder how the chimney appears. (laughs) Others want to put bars on their windows. Like Back to the Future 2. For what it's worth, Santa was very good to me. Eventually. (laughs) Did you leave the milk and cookies outside too? No. Oh, he shouldn't have given you anything. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even think I got that far with it. Maybe my, my parents did and they were like, oh, don't worry. We left these. Maybe they did play into this and they humored me and told me that they left the milk and cookies outside. No, we're going to follow up on the next week's episode. Oh, we're gonna, I'm going to text your father and get an update. <laughs> I want to know, did Santa's milk and cookies get left outside on the stoop? <laughs> That I don't remember. All right. Well, no, you're, well, we're about to find out <laughs> coming up next week. The other thing I always questioned is when Laura goes to pick up uh, Charlie on Christmas morning and she talks about Scott's pajamas and Charlie goes, oh, uh, Judy gave them to you. Yes. Judy meaning the elf. She's like, oh, Judy. It's like, um, you're remarried? with a husband why are you taking this so personally it bothers me anytime that happens whether it's a movie whether it's tv we're like or it's real life well yeah where the happens in real life that is that is very true where the ex has already moved on and then when the other single person starts to move on with their life then then the first ex is you really relinquish the right to have any kind of feeling about it yeah really that was the it's the only thing in this movie that has ever bothered me even as a kid. Um the ending actually does bother me a little bit. Um not in a way that makes it bad because as I said this is my favorite Christmas movie. But the way that they wrap it up um I mean first of all I love the idea that Santa's on the run now and since they've taken Charlie back to the North Pole they report him as as a kidnapping. So on Christmas Eve, they are waiting for Scott Calvin at the house and they arrest Santa, which is brilliantly done because all of the neighborhood kids are out to see Santa being handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. That's a rough visual. It is. And the kids are like, let Santa go. But uh, it's funny. And then, um, you know, knowingly, Bernard has prepared for this very moment. So they deploy the elves, which is um, this 
force of elves who are going to go and rescue Santa. They're going to fly down, you know, wherever he is and bust him out. And they're prepared with, um, you know, this is where I love where some of the kitschy Christmas stuff comes into play, but it's so well done. Like they bust into the police station and they tie the cop up with ribbon. Did you ever notice that he's sitting at the desk reading a romance novel? Oh, I thought it was a Christmas novel. No, Maybe it's a, a Christmas romance. It's a romance novel. Oh, no, with I didn't. a pink cover. Yeah, it's really good. I didn't notice that. But um, yeah, they and this is where Charlie really starts to win me over because not only is he, you know, he's dropped the quit machine thing. He's not sad anymore. He's happy that somebody finally believes him. So now he's teamed up with the elves. They've gone to the house to get him which is surrounded by cops, and nobody noticed that this child was sitting alone on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're as bad as the cops in Home Alone, where, tell a woman to count her kids again. House seems secure. <laughs> we'll send someone over to the house to check on your son. Yeah. Um, so the elves have Charlie. They go to the police station with him. They get past the first cop because they wrap him up in ribbon, and then they... Charlie goes and he stuffs the cop's donut in his mouth so that he can't alert the rest of the police station that they're actually here because he knows he goes oh you're the Calvin kid so after they have him tied up he stuffs the donut and now you know he's starting to own his role in this too as far as getting his father out and then they go to the cell and they bust Santa out with tinsel yeah I love that yeah because otherwise tinsel does what you know you throw it on the tree it's a mess. The dog eats it. The cat <laughs> chews it. It's no good. We used to throw we threw it on the tree until we had a dog. Yeah. But I remember like the tinsel would fall off the tree and it would go on the Lionel train track and the train would hit it and it caused a problem. There's nothing redeeming about tinsel. No, it's Sticks probably what you. causes most Christmas tree fires. I bet you it does. That and people who don't know you gotta water your tree oh every day. But in this case, it busts Scott Calvin out of jail so that he can continue to deliver the rest of the presents. Yes, the holiday rocketeers bust him out with tinsel. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, the way that they wrap up the film, this is where it loses it a little bit for me, is that, you know, as you said in the plot, Bernard reminds Charlie that anytime he shakes the globe, his dad is called back to come and see him. And I feel like that would work better if Santa was required to be at the North Pole all the time but the rules are broken in this case because Santa's living a normal life so he can essentially see Charlie 11 months out of the year what bothers me is that Laura burns the custody papers and says you know you can see Charlie anytime you want um so Charlie doesn't just go with him now now that all the cops have been called off and now that she's burnt the custody papers, she doesn't let Charlie finish out the night with him. Well, that was Scott's decision. Right. That is true because he does say, I need to get this job done. You need to be here with your parents. Which is also important because then it's when Charlie says, and I, I can't be selfish either. Yeah. No, it, it is a good full circle moment. It was a lesson that Charlie had to learn. Yeah. And that he, he can't keep Santa all to himself because the rest of the kids need him. However... He flips the globe not 10 minutes later. Right. Because they're in, I believe, the Chicago area. Or maybe I'm just thinking that because of Home Alone. But uh, Scott comes back and he's like, I was on my way to Cleveland. I just left you 10 minutes ago. For whatever reason, I thought that it was Michigan. But that might just be because that's where Tim Allen is from. 
They never really say what the city is. There is a Lake Avenue, though, so maybe maybe you're right. Maybe. I mean, it really is anywhere middle America. There's a Lake be. Avenue out, out east on the island. Though. Yeah. I mean, is. But uh, yeah, it, it's Middle America somewhere. Um, there, the only um, part of the of the movie at the end that kind of leaves me to question it is when Neil says to Charlie, um, "You're going to make a great psychiatrist one day, kid." Which, first off, Neil, stop talking. Um, he doesn't want to be you. Neil and your and your horrendous sweaters. is a weenie whistle. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> he is straight up a weenie whistle. Yep. Um, but Charlie goes. Uh, I'm going to go into the family business. Yes. What that implies is that you plan on throwing your father off the roof one day to become Santa Claus. Or shooting him with a gun. Yeah. I noticed that too. But It's a nice sentiment. If you go back to the clause, they do. They did figure out this loophole too. This movie is perfect at, at tying up all the loose ends. It does say until uh, either Santa is something to the effect of he's hurt or he can no longer fulfill his duties. So I think I have to imagine that they're letting Santa retire in a way. Like at 80 years old, Scott Calvin is not going up in the sleigh. Could be. Um, but yeah, I almost wish that that moment happened the next morning because it doesn't really show that Charlie grew as a character because he called his dad back 10 minutes later. I wish they let him finish the night out or maybe it's dawn and he lets Charlie do the last few houses with him. Right. I feel like calling him back 10 minutes later to wrap it up. I don't know. It, it's a weak point in an otherwise perfect movie. Sure. Um, and I think that's exactly what it is. Even the cheesy, the, the, the cheesiness of flying off into the night. You know, it's just everything is done tastefully. It should be cheesy, but it, it's not. And the parts that are cheesy, they're done in a way where it embraces it but without picking fun at itself completely. Right. And I can never listen to ZZ Top the same way ever again. <laughs> if I have any other gripe with the movie, it's that I can't listen to ZZ Top without thinking of this movie. Right. Um, but in all, this movie lives on for so many reasons. And I think that when it came out, you knew that it was an immediate classic. It continues to live on as a classic. And I, I don't know anybody who doesn't have this in their repertoire of of films that they watch every year. Yeah, to me, this is like the hocus pocus of Halloween. Except it's better. It is. Tell me, oh, come on, now we've reviewed both of them for, for, their, for their respective holidays. What's the better movie? The Santa Claus or Hocus Pocus? The Santa Claus. Just as because everything we've said, what we love about this movie so much is that it just ties up all those loose ends. But even past this, forget the fact that that it's a Christmas film. Mm -hmm. You put this up against almost any movie. This holds up to almost any movie. Yeah. Because of the story it tells, the characters it develops, the way it wraps everything up, the way it ties up loose ends, and the score for this movie is great but otherwise this does not have any musical numbers right it's not a musical it didn't need to be it didn't that would have taken be. away i but agree as far as christmas movies go i would even argue that i believe that anybody could be santa claus more than i believe a 10 year old could hold his own against two bad guys and that's no disrespect to home alone i love home alone 
But if you're talking about what's realistic, I believe that Santa could fall off a roof and anybody could take over more than I believe that these bad guys would have lived through that situation. Right. I mean, in reality, probably the most realistic Christmas movie of all time is A Christmas Story. It doesn't crack my top five, which has mm. nothing to do with the fact that it's on for 24 hours. It's like a 5A, 5B. Yeah, but top tw- 10, sure. Yeah. But not five. The thing is with A Christmas Story... I love it. And what I love about that movie is that you really do view everything, the cutaway scenes, and the whole movie itself is told in retrospect, but through the eyes of a child in a very innocent way. I love A Christmas Story, and I've watched it my entire life. But there is just something about all of these other movies that just holds a place for me that just nudges it out which is impressive when you talk about the fact that we just watched the christmas chronicles Mm. that's why we bring that up is if you like this movie if you like home alone if you like gremlins the christmas chronicles it it's a movie that that embraces the kitsch and it feels one like one of those old school movies Mm. but without being so much of a parody which it, it's is, more of a hat tip to all of them. And I think that that's what this movie is, by and large. Yeah. It's a story that has been told, the story of Christmas and the story of Santa Claus. It pulls the elements of Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life, but it does it in its own very unique way. Because it does question everything and gives an explanation to back it up. Correct. It questions everything without being very definitive about one way or the other until the movie ties up at the end. And what I love... And what it teaches you is there is a Santa Claus, you just have to believe. Exactly. And that's what I love because when, when it starts out, it almost doesn't seem like it's okay for children because Charlie has lost his belief in Santa Claus. But by the end of the film, it shows you why kids and adults alike should believe. So uh, we're curious, is this a part of your season? Do you schedule a viewing of the Santa Claus? Let us know on the social media at Monoreal Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, We have a contest that's ending. We'll get to the winner in just a few minutes. We have some other business to talk about. Last night during Monday Night Football, the new Captain Marvel trailer dropped, and supposedly tomorrow confirmed we are getting an Avengers 4 trailer. Let's talk about the Captain Marvel trailer. Um, To me, I don't know much about Captain Marvel, admittedly. Um, The trailer doesn't look bad. It looks like a good movie. With that said, it looks like every Marvel movie up to this point, except that it's Captain Marvel. I feel like you could take her out and put in almost any character with the exception of maybe Black Panther and it could be the trailer for any Marvel movie yeah again maybe it's not fair to say because I'm not all that familiar with Captain Marvel but I know it's a trailer but I feel like I needed a little something more to latch on to I mean I had said it the first time we saw Guardians of the Galaxy I was like oh here we go again we're chasing an orb not realizing at the time that that was in the context of Thanos and what they were doing with the bigger picture. 
Um, but this kind of it 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 feels like everything else. It especially where they're shooting to me. It kind of reminds me of um, Thor, where they find his hammer. Yeah, in the first one. Um, it j- I I need something else to pique my interest. I think part of it too is I'm still kind of salty about Infinity War. Um, I have, yeah. I've only seen Infinity War one time. Before I give my review of it, which we will do eventually, I do need to watch it a few more times because there is a lot going on there. But I recall watching to the end of the credits and seeing them tease Captain Marvel, and I thought, so I just watched a 10-year trailer for Captain Marvel. Yeah rather than a trilogy. Right. I felt like every movie they made to build up Infinity War was just a way to build up Captain Marvel. Right. So maybe that's a bit of my saltiness. I mean, let's be real. We're going to go see it. Just like we're going to go see the new Avengers movie. Yeah, but I'm just, I'm hoping that I'm invested in this the same way that I was invested in everything leading up and through Avengers. Right. Uh, So tomorrow we get the new Avengers trailer. I mean, I don't know how much they're going to show you, but I'm hoping that it answers a few of the questions that were left off. Obviously, they're not going to they're not going to give the movie away, but I'm hoping that it answers at least a couple of the questions that Infinity War left off for those who did not enjoy Infinity War. Right. Or for those that don't necessarily read the comics and don't really know what's going to happen because they don't have that. I mean, I know they deviate from the comics, but I feel like the comics do serve as more of a roadmap. Um, So I'm hoping that just more from the, the film aspect of it that, I I mean, I, I hate bridge movies. I I really do. I I don't believe movies should be open-ended. I believe it should be beginning, middle, and end. So I'm sure it's going to answer questions. Um, But I just hope that we kind of know where it's going and what questions will be answered and we don't have to wait until we see the movie. Right. Um, But that drops tomorrow. Uh, Captain Marvel last night. Um, And some exciting news for for you. Uh, You are officially up and running. Yes, I am officially up officially up and running as a magical vacation planner. Um, I'm starting to book for 2019. So if you're interested in having me help plan your vacation, you can book through me. Send me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. And you can also find that link on our website. You'll find my uh, magical vacation planner email. Yes. And don't forget, you can also go to www.monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home, where you'll not only find the archive for all of our episodes of Monoreal Radio, which you can also subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeart, Spotify, TuneIn, um, but you can also get links to the Amazon Instant Video for every film that we review here on Monoreal Radio. Um, with that being said, uh, for the last two weeks, we've been giving away, or we've been taking entries for our wonderful giveaway, a prize pack that we picked up while we were out at Disneyland. Um It's got park maps, it has a pen, it's got stickers, and the big prize is a pin from the uh, Disney studio, which you can only get if you tour the studio. Yes, you can't buy it anywhere. 
Can't buy it anywhere. It's a beautiful pin. 179 entries later over the course of two weeks. I this am... was generated from your Facebook likes, your retweets, your subscriptions, your ratings. Yep. And I've got the mouse here. And we've put everything... So what we did was we took every entry, we put them in an Excel spreadsheet. I was able to then randomize the spreadsheet so everybody's scattered. It's not in alphabetical or numerical order. Um, and I have entered numbers 1 through 179 on the Google random number generator. And we're at number 129... Okay, so number 129, by far was the person who had the most entries, actually. Yeah, I recognize that name. This guy was all over the social media. He retweeted everything. He liked everything. He subscribed to the podcast. He rated the podcast. He was in it to win it. He was in it to win it, ladies and gentlemen, and he's been with us since day one. Loyal listener Devin has won the Disneyland prize pack. Now, listen, we've got prize packs ahead of you that we've got thought out for, for future episodes. So just remember, guys, you got to be in it to win it. That's not to say that you can't win with one entry. But if you're constantly sharing that social media, commenting, liking, it's like anything else. The more you do, the more odds you have to win, just like Devin won. So, Devin, we're going to reach out to you. We'll get your prize pack in the mail later on this week. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. We are so excited for the rest of the month. We have some really cool things coming up. we got some excellent movies to talk about. We're counting down the days to the new Mary Poppins movie. And we're really excited because... Once we get through the month of December, we post the first episode of the new year. We have a very special guest joining us, which we're really excited about. We're excited to have him. He's excited to come on. If you love Disney, more specifically, if you love Disney parks, you're going to know exactly who that is. And I'm just going to leave that there for you. We'll tease it in the weeks coming up. All right, guys. So thank you so much again for joining us. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.